We're continuing on in our study through the book of Acts. This morning we are in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And we're looking at verses 16 through 34 this morning of Acts chapter 17. The book of Acts, of course, is in the New Testament, which is the latter part of your Bible. It's the fourth book of the of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Well, actually the fifth book, I apologize. We're in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 16 through 34 this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Sounds much like today. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you wish, or what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even from our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And for this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. In Streams of Living Water, Richard Foster tells of Billy Graham 
preaching at Cambridge in 1955. For three nights, he tried to make his preaching academic and enlightened, but with no effect. Graham finally realized that preaching or that presenting the intellectual side of faith was not his gift and began preaching the simple message of Jesus rescuing you, rescuing us from a problem with sin. Foster wrote, the results were astonishing. Hundreds of sophisticated students responded to this clear presentation of the gospel. It was a lesson in clarity and simplicity that he never got, never forgot. The great Martin Luther is quoted as saying, When I preach, I regard neither doctors nor magistrates, of whom I have above 40 in the congregation. I have all eyes on the servant maids and the children. And if the learned men are not well pleased with what they hear, well, the door is open. If the person of high intellect is not capable of understanding or benefiting from a message that is aimed towards the more simple person, then they are condemning themselves as not being able to understand and receive any spiritual truth. This morning, if you are intimidated from sharing the gospel by those who are considered intellectual, then I trust that the message that we see here from Paul and that he gives to these philosophers at Athens would encourage you. I trust it would give you some instruction. Let's remember why Paul is in Athens in the first place. He had fled persecution in Berea. Remember those people came from Thessalonica and uh, they came to persecute Paul and now he's in Athens and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come and join him. And as Paul is going through the marketplace, it says his spirit is provoked within him at all the idols he saw. And just so we are clear and so we understand about all of these idols, it is estimated that there were about 30,000 idols in the city. And yet the city only had about 10,000 people that lived there. Athens was still at this time of Paul considered, uh, when he's visiting there, it was still considered an intellectual and cultural center that had, that had um, two rival schools of philosophy that were there, that presided there, and they were known as the Stoics and the Epicureans. Epicurus taught that pleasure was the chief goal in life. It was a great achievement to find intellectual serenity by overcoming passions and superstitious fears, especially if one could overcome the fear of death. He was, Epicurus was fascinated with the material and believed that when you died, you simply ceased to exist. And therefore, there was no such thing as the afterlife. Epicurus believed in gods, but said that gods never involved themselves with the affairs of humans. The Stoics that were present there followed the teachings of Zeno. Zeno taught that God lies within the soul itself and that through wisdom and restraint, it delivers a person from the passions and the desires that upset the ordinary life. The Stoics' goal was to live in harmony with nature and they placed a great emphasis on man's rational ability and man's self-sufficiency and obedience to duty. Because they placed such great emphasis on their own ability, often the Stoics were people that were filled with great pride. They were pantheistic, which is the view that God is 
everything and everyone, and that everyone and everything is God. The reason why I bring this up is because this was Paul's audience. This was the audience for his sermon that he preached in Athens. Notice we don't see Paul quoting scripture because they would not have been familiar with it. They wouldn't have understood it. They they didn't know it. But we do see Paul beginning his argument with God, who is the creator of all things. And we see him ending his argument with God as the judge of all. Paul covers sin. He covers righteousness. He covers the judgment in all three areas are where Jesus said the Holy Spirit would bring conviction to people. Paul gives a brief introduction and then quickly points them to the supremacy of God as creator and the Lord of heaven and earth in verse 24. Paul then quickly moves to the sovereignty of God over all things, all people, and all nations and shows man's utter dependence on God for life and for breath and for everything that they have. He then shows the foolishness of idolatry and then closes by calling them to repentance before God brings judgment on them by a man he has appointed whom he raised from the dead. When Paul mentions the resurrection, some of them mock him, and others said that they wanted to hear more later, and a few of them believed, including a leading man and a woman. Now, there are some people that say, because so few responded to the message that Paul delivered, that Paul was a failure in his approach. However, I don't believe that. In fact, I believe he succeeded, Which is why I entitled the message, Preaching the Gospel to Idolatrous Intellectuals. Because I believe in this passage of scripture, we have a model of how to reach those that are intellectuals. In fact, I want to lay it out like this. In order to reach idolatrous intellectuals, we must first find some common ground. We must then reveal to them God's sovereignty and their sinfulness. And thirdly, we must call them to repentance and faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. First... To reach idolatrous intellectuals, we must first find some common ground. I believe this is crucial. This isn't just with intellectuals. This is with anybody. Oftentimes, instead of any common ground, we just try to jump into a gospel presentation. Look at verse 16. It says this, that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. This is the reason why in verse 17 we read that he reasoned in the synagogue in the marketplace where the Epicureans and the Stoics heard him. And then in verse 19 we read that they brought him to the Areopagus which was the council of of people in Athens which was responsible for various political and educational and philosophical and religious matters as well as legal proceedings. And so Paul is there. They bring him in. This is not a trial, but rather it seems to be kind of this preliminary hearing. Paul, we want to, we want to hear your views. We want to, this is strange to our ears. This isn't something that we've heard before. We want to hear what you have to say. And so the Areopagus begins by asking Paul some questions. What is he teaching? And what does it mean? Now, we already read that Paul's spirit was provoked, but he didn't respond to them by flying off the handle. We don't read that. We don't read that Paul's like, listen up, you bunch of idolatrous heathens. That's not what he says, right? His spirit's provoked within him, but that's not how he starts off the conversation. Said Paul says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So he shows some restraint. 
And he is striking some sort of common ground with them that they are at least interested in spiritual things. You know, I've, I've talked to you all before about using the form method to share the gospel, family, occupation, religious background, my testimony. A good way to have a conversation with somebody is to simply ask them if they have any spiritual background or any spiritual beliefs. Or if someone is trying to speak intellectually about God, sometimes simply saying, hey, I can tell that you've put a lot of thought into these spiritual issues, such as God. Have you ever thought about who Jesus is? And striking a common ground. Look where Paul goes next. He says, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. We don't know how this altar was started. Most likely it was because they did not want to offend some God they had never heard of. So they erected an altar to that God that they had never heard of. Because they wanted to make sure that they had all their bases covered. The point is that Paul noticed, he picked up on it as a part of their culture. And he used it as he's saying, as he's talking to them. You have this altar that's to an unknown God. Let me tell you about this God that you do not know. You see how he connected with them. He found common ground. And then he tells them the truth about who God is. Listen, church, don't be intimidated to talk to someone who is considered an intellectual about Jesus. You know something that they do not know. You know God and they are ignorant of God. Tell them what you know. If you know God through his son, Jesus Christ, you have a knowledge that many people lack. Find some common ground with them and, and, and talk to them and tell them what you know. Don't be intimidated by them. Secondly, in order to reach idolatrous intellectuals, we must reveal to them God's sovereignty and their sinfulness. Notice how Paul brings exaltation to God. Do you see that? He brings exaltation to God and he brings humility to proud men. First notice where he starts, verses 24 and 25. He says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul starts at the beginning. Everyone has a cause. And he starts at the beginning. Not just those who are intellectuals need to understand the, the basic facts of, of God and who God is. We all need to understand that God exists and we're not him. What happens often with those who are intellectuals and others for that matter is they set themselves up as judge over God. In fact, God is just an idea for them to figure out. It's just something that, that we need to figure God out. However, Paul starts off his argument the same way scripture does. God is the creator of the world. He is inescapable and he is um, a fact. 
God is a fact. He's not simply an idea. He's not something that we just have to figure out one day and maybe one day we will figure him out. Paul continues, since God is a fact and since he created the universe and all that is in the universe, he is therefore the Lord of the universe. So not only is he God, the creator of the universe, but as the creator of the universe, he is Lord of the universe. And if you think that that the God of this universe can be contained in a temple, by the way, I need to let you know that somehow that, that if you think that, that his power and who he is is contained in a temple, that it's not the case. You're sadly mistaken is what basically Paul, that'd be a modern day translation. In fact, says Paul, the very breath that you breathe comes from God. He is the giver of life. But not only is he the giver of life, he is the sustainer of life. And every day that we have is numbered. And when our number is up, he will take our life. And we will stand before him as the judge of the universe. And the past minute you breathe roughly 18 breaths of air. In the past hour you have breathed 1,080 times. And over 25,000 times in the past 24 hours. If you make it to 40 years old, by the time you're 40, you have breathed more than 365 million breaths of air. And each and every single breath that you have ever taken in your life is a gift from the sovereign God of this universe. And it is an act of mercy and grace to you. Do you even bother to stop and thank God for your breath? Do you take a breath and say, oh, thanks, God. Thanks for letting me breathe that breath. Oh, thanks, God. Thanks for letting me breathe that breath. I I seriously doubt any of us do that. Not only does Paul say that God gives life and breath, but he says God gives everything. Do you have a place to live? It's from God. Do you have a family and friends? They're from God. Do you have food to eat? God gave it to you. Do you have clothes on your back? God placed them there. Do you have a job? God gave it to you. Do you have money? God gave it to you. Do you get the picture? He is the giver of everything that you have. Everything that you have is from God. God is sovereign. He rules and gives everyone everything they have. And yet idolatrous intellectuals take for granted the incredible mercy of God displayed to them throughout their life. And what is worse, they have the audacity to stand in judgment over God and challenge his very existence. Man is incredibly arrogant. If the God of this universe so willed, he could at any moment take the proud intellectual and have them breathe their last breath at any moment without any warning and they could pass into eternity. Because God is ruler over all. Paul takes it even further in letting the intellectuals know that they have nothing to offer to God. Look at verse 25. He says, God is not served by humans' hands as though he needed anything. God can get along just fine. He doesn't need our intellect. He's going to be just fine for the next millennia if we don't get to contribute. God gives his children the privilege of serving him 
but he doesn't need it. He doesn't need us in order to accomplish any of his purposes. The minute that you think that somehow God needs you, that somehow you are indispensable to God, you're in trouble. God is able to do whatever he so chooses, whatever he so wills. He doesn't need our approval. God's not up in heaven waiting for, waiting for me to give, his, uh, give my approval for him to do something. God is sovereign over all things. Look down at verse 26. Paul is making it clear that God sovereignly determines the rise and fall of individuals and nations. Paul is in direct confrontation with the Epicureans. Remember, they believe God is not involved with creation. They believe that any God is detached. He's not involved in it. And, and here he's saying, Paul's saying, listen, God is in charge of even the rise and fall of nations. He's also in this verse confronting, or in these verses confronting racism. This verse, as the Greeks called uh, everyone who did not speak Greek, they would call them barbarians, claiming the superiority of the race, saying, well, we're superior. This is what the Greeks said. We're superior to those barbarians. Paul's making it clear that no nation or race is superior than any other because God made us all from one common ancestor. Racism of any kind stems from sinful pride in our heart. When we think we're better than someone else, it only stems from sinful pride in our heart. If we think that we're better because of our socioeconomic status or because of the color of our skin, then it's sinful pride. If we think that we're better than someone because of where we were raised or where we got to be born, that's sinful pride in our heart. It's We have a name for that. That's called racism. And it stems from sinful pride. Paul makes it clear that God determines in his sovereignty, in his sovereign wisdom, the appointed times and boundaries of every single nation's dwelling place. God raises up world powers and God takes world powers down again. And he does it all according to his purpose. No nation or ruler or leader has any right to ever boast because their power or because of their intelligence or because they've accomplished something. Because the only way that they've ever been able to accomplish anything is not by their power or their intellect or anything else. It's only by the grace of God. And so when we as Americans sometimes try to think, well, look how great we are, don't you, don't you mistake. It's not by our power, it's not by our strength, and it's not by our intellect. The only reason we are where we are today is by the grace of God. And nations will rise and fall at the sovereignty of what God wants to do. If God were to take the United States of America and cause us to be plundered and plagued and pillaged, causing us to fall into poverty and weakness, God has every right to do so because He is sovereign. And then... Paul makes his argument in the same way he does in Romans chapter 1. That God is evident to all people. In Romans 1, Paul makes it clear that through creation, it can be clearly understood that God exists. Therefore, no one has his excuse. However, we have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. 
And as we see here for the Athenians, they were plunged into idolatry. The point Paul is making is this, that even though God has graciously given to men life and breath and all things that they have, ignored him. And they've gone their own way, and they should have sought God and felt their way towards him in Paul's words. And if they did, God would by his grace have allowed them to find him. And Paul makes it clear that even though God is exalted high and lifted up, He is still near. Do you see the point, church, that Paul is making over and over and over again throughout these verses that God is in control, that God is sovereign? Look at verse 28. Paul quotes a couple of pagan poets. He says this, In him we live and move and have our being, and even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul is showing them that even these pagan poets had some understanding of God and he is using their own writers which by the way is is a great debate tactic if you ever engage in conversation but he's using their own writers to support his point finally look at verse 29 being then God's offspring because your own poets have said we're God's offspring and he says in verse 29 being then God's offspring we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image that's formed by the art and imagination of man he's saying your own pagan poets say that we are God's offspring and they're right we are God's offspring we owe our very existence to who God is to to, to God why in the world are you committing idolatry then so Paul in this in this city of idols over 30,000 idols Paul in the midst of the city in the midst of the Areopagus says to them shows to them the absurdity of idolatry. Don't miss it. Paul's making it clear that these intellectuals are are idolaters at heart and even today, right? We have idolatry going on all around us. People may not have some little statue that they bow down to, but many people are pure idolaters. There are Hindu <laughs> idols There are Buddha idols. There's idols of Mary. There's even idols of Jesus. So often our idolatry is subtle. Sometimes Christians commit idolatry. We try to disguise it behind things like animal rights. Or we try to elevate the rights of animals over those of humans. People get stuck. Worshipping the created rather than the creator. There are those that hold the strong views of humanism in which they worship man and his intellect. They are idolaters. Some say we've evolved from ponds of slime or from apes. They are also idolaters. Paul in Romans makes it clear that idolatry is this, that they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. We even as followers of Christ, we get caught up in idolatry at times where we worship the created rather than the creator. We make more to do about the things that God created sometimes rather than we make to do about God. 
The, the very thing that he created, sometimes we, we may not say that it's our idol, but we secretly bow down to it. We secretly begin to worship it. We secretly begin to focus on that. We secretly begin to sing songs to it or, or sing praise to it and say, look at how great this is. We can worship the cross rather than the crucified. We can worship the building rather than the, the God of the building. We can even worship the routine because we don't want to get out of routine. And, and so that becomes our thing. But here's the thing. When idolatrous intellectual is stuck in their own wisdom, they have a problem. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Listen, we can't reason people into heaven. You will never reason someone into heaven. Reasoning is not sufficient for salvation. The reason why reasoning alone will not work is because the heart of the problem is sin, not thought. The root of sin, the root, the root is sin. It's not my thinking. And the root scent of idolatrous intellectuals is pride. Listen, we have to reveal to them that God is sovereign and that they are sinful. Even before Paul gave a defense of the gospel, these intellectuals mocked him and said, What, what does this babbler wish to say? In fact, that word babbler actually in the Greek means scavenger, which was a parasitic person who accumulates teachings and sayings of others, especially those who would later use this saying for their own prophet. Its goal was to mock the person. So they were, they were mocking Paul. It's a kind of uh, funny how they made fun of Paul. And, and mock him. But look at what Luke writes in verse 21. He says this. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there. Would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So as they're mocking Paul the babbler. Luke reveals they were the real babblers. If we're going to reach idolatrous intellectuals, we must reveal to them that God is sovereign and they are sinful. They have sinned against the holy God. So we've seen that in order to reach them for Christ. We, first, we find some common ground. Secondly, when we, we, we reveal to them that God is sovereign and that they are sinful. And finally, and thirdly, this, in order to reach idolat idolatrous intellectuals for Christ, we must call them to repentance and faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me at verses 30 and 31. Look what Paul says. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Don't miss the fact that Paul called them to repentance. Why do they need repentance? Why do they have to repent? Because of their sin and idolatry. We're not to worship idols of any sort, whether invisible or visible, of the mind or of materials. 
of the imagination or of the world. Look at the wording in verse 29. We ought not think, it says in verse 29, we ought not think to imagine uh, that God is like gold or silver or stone or any other image formed by man's art or man's imagination. The word imagination means eternal thoughts, ideas. Every man has a concept, a thought about God, but we should not. We should seek and find the only living and true God. Every person is personally responsible for forsaking the idols of this world and finding God. We are to repent for seeking Him in the objects of this world. But we are also to repent because the days of ignorance are over. Paul said these days of ignorance God overlooked. Before, now, God overlooked man's ignorance. Not in the sense of closing his eyes or of condoning man's idolatry, but he overlooked man's ignorance until he could prepare man for the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. And now God's son has come and God demands that all men everywhere repent. Why is there a call to repentance? Because he's going to judge the world through his risen son, who's Jesus Christ. It says that he has fixed the day. It has already been determined. It's not, it's not when we determine the day has already been determined when God will judge the world. Listen, life does not cease at the grave. There will be a judgment. And the judge is Jesus Christ, who is ordained by God to do the judging. And the surety of his judgment is seen in the fact that God resurrected his only son. The only way for the idolatrous intellectual to be saved is the only way that anyone can ever be saved. And that's by repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus as the one who bore the penalty of their sin on the cross of Christ. It's the only way anyone can be saved. Now we notice that Paul's message is interrupted. Because when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, it says some mocked him. Most people either felt life was just ceased after death, or else a person passed into some fluffy cloud somewhere, some half slumber and half conscious state of being. Any idea that life would be so pur purposeful that a man would exist forever, that he would literally, that man would literally arise from the dead and live in a perfect state of being was just beyond their understanding. They, they couldn't grasp it. It says that others put off making decision. Some mocked him. Others put off making a decision. They thought about it. They tried to grasp the message they, and, and think through the implications. What, what living a life of righteousness would mean. The great price they would have to pay. They just weren't ready to make such a commitment. They, they, they weren't ready for that commitment. But now, church, look at verse 33. It says that Paul went out from among them. Sometimes I think this is, this is the most difficult thing to understand. But sometimes the best thing to do is to present the gospel and leave. Sometimes we get so frustrated. We don't even present the gospel because we're, we're afraid of rejection. But sometimes the best thing to do is just present the gospel and lay it at the feet of the person. Say this is the gospel and just leave it at that. Paul had been obedient to his duty. He proclaimed the glorious message of salvation. That's, that's what we're called to do, church. 
That's what you and I are called to do. Be obedient. To proclaim the gospel. To proclaim this glorious message that we know about. This is what Christmas is, is all about. This is why we celebrate Christmas. We, I know we like to talk about the, the baby in the manger. But the celebration of Christmas is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's the fact that God in the flesh became a man. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we do it. And, and, and the God-man confronted sinful men. The light shined into the darkness and the darkness didn't comprehend it. That's what Christmas is all about. And sometimes the best thing to do is to present the message, to be obedient, that we just are, our, God says that we are to be obedient. And so just be obedient and leave it at that because you're not responsible for how they respond. God is. It's up to them whether they repent or not. Some believed. Some believed. Isn't that glorious? Some believed. You know, uh, all those people that, that write about this passage of Scripture, and I've read many theologians and stuff that say, well, Paul was a failure in this. Boy. I sure like to be a failure and have some believe. Some believed. Dionysius was one of the judges of the great court of Athens. Damaris was the name of the woman. Respectable women of Athens would not have been in the market crowd listening to Paul. Therefore, she was probably a woman of maybe even a moral, immoral character. There were also others who were saved. But they're unnamed. Some believed. Church, the gospel has the power to reach everyone. It has the power to reach the high. It has the power to reach the low. All the unsaved has the power. But here's the problem. Many people on this earth are walking around concerning themselves with the deep questions of life, all the while never coming face to face with their own sin and their own need of a Savior. However, if we, you and I, could just follow Paul's example, if we would find common ground, we would find common ground if we would reveal to them the sovereignty of God and their sinfulness and call them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? Some people will mock you. Some people may make fun of you. Some people, you know what? Some people will get mad. Some people are going to put you off for a later time. They'll say, well, I'll think about that later. I'll think about that one day. Or maybe you and I can talk at a later time. But church, don't miss the point. Some will believe and be saved. Some will believe. But you know what? If you never tell them, how are they going to believe? You know what scripture teaches us? If you never say anything, how are they going to believe? 
So let me just say this in response to this message. It's simple. The response is simple. It's been a response for several weeks now. And it will continue to be a response because you know what? Acts is all about Paul taking the gospel to people. Response is simple. Are you sharing the gospel and looking for opportunities to do so? Are you sharing the gospel and looking for opportunities to do so? Now, last week we talked about the culture of Christian. You may say, well, well, well Pastor, uh, I'm, I'm too afraid to share the gospel. That's not what God's word, God's word says. Only share if, you're, if you feel comfortable doing it. That's not what we read. Are you sharing the gospel and are you looking for opportunities to do so? Do you find that common ground? Do you reveal God's sovereignty and man's sinfulness? Are you calling people to repentance? It's really that simple. Do you, are, you, are you having conversations, gospel conversations with people? Are you looking for opportunities? Man, my, when, when, when somebody, when I'm having a conversation with someone and they open the door for me to talk to them about the gospel, I feel my heart just start to beat faster. I get excited. And I'm thankful that I've had those opportunities since I've been here. I'm thankful that I've had opportunities to share the gospel with, with several folks. Are you sharing the gospel? And are you looking for opportunities to do so? Secondly, do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you know Him? Have you, like Paul revealed here, have you realized that God is sovereign and you are sinful? Have you repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, his atoning work on the cross for your sin? Do you know him as Savior? You know, maybe this morning the Lord has spoken to your conscience. Maybe this morning you say, Pastor, I, I, I've been too afraid. I don't share the gospel. And, and maybe you want to respond to that. Maybe you want to want me to pray with you. I'd be glad to do that. Maybe you want to come and pray on your own. That's fine. Maybe you can pray in your pew. There's nothing that says you have to walk down an aisle to, to pray and, and ask the Lord to direct you and, and repent and apologize to God. There's nothing that says that. You can talk to me later. You, you don't even have to talk to me. You don't have to mention anything. But maybe the Lord's spoken to your conscience this morning and, and, and you need to do some business. You need to repent. Maybe this morning you don't know Christ. And if that's you, I'm going to be standing down front. I'd love for you to come down and just grab my hand and say, Pastor, I need to know Jesus. And I'd be glad to share with you how you can know him. However, Lord's spoken to your conscience this morning, I pray that you would respond to him. Here in a minute, we're going to sing a song, and that'll be your chance to respond. Let's go ahead and close our prayer.